This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking today to Daniel Kirstein, Global Head of M&A, ESG Advisory and Activist Defense at Barclays. He founded and established a group in 2011, and it has team members that are located in New York, London, Tokyo, all of which are focused solely on defending corporate clients against shareholder activism. Thanks, Daniel, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I found that even if they don't admit it, M&A is a hugely important goal for activists. A lot of them publicly push for M&A, such as uh, we saw with McCallum at Kohl's, and we saw Corvax, Keith Meister just reappeared recently with an M&A push at a Stockholm-listed company, Kindred, online gambling operator. We saw Turtle Park just settled with Donrail, and they have an M&A review going on. So, Daniel, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how important M&A is to activists. And, you know, there's a variety of different kinds of activist approaches to M&A, you know, pushing for divestitures, pressuring for a sale of the business or an effort to block a deal outright or push for a higher offer. Yeah, I think the short answer is it is incredibly important, Ron. I think that it's not that it has to be the answer and it's not going to be the driver for initiating campaigns across the board. But when you think about what activists are looking for, which is primarily to drive return for their investors, uh, M&A provides certainty of outcome. Right? It's in theory going to give them if they've invested right and if they're able to push to that outcome, uh, it's going to give them a premium return in a short time frame. And so reduce risk and lock in that return. I, you know, To just put some numbers around it, I, I think when we look back, it's roughly a quarter, so 25% of all campaigns since 2018 have an actual announced or stated M&A theme to them. So it's one where, as you say, there is an incredible amount of importance there. You see it on the way in, and I think the numbers are truly higher than that, mm-hmm. than uh, even having that 25% where the activist is upfront and stating that the M&A is the thesis that they're looking for. So, Daniel, I feel like a lot of activism, M&A involves a variety of different options. So, you know, obviously from everything from auctioning the business, pushing for a divestiture, and we're seeing more and more in the U.S. of activism involving existing deals, either activists pushing to break up mergers or pushing for higher deal prices. So what areas, what are we seeing right now when it comes to M&A and activism? Ron, you're, you're exactly right. And I think uh, in 2021, it was more than a third of activism uh, campaigns with an M&A focus were actually some form of against. Uh, so whether they were outright vote no's or bump mm-hmm. campaigns, now that number's come down a little bit and it was up significantly in 21 versus the prior few years. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that maintains at sort of a, a pretty high level uh, or if we start to see it come back a little bit uh, with a function of where markets are. I think you can look at what was going on from a more macro sense as a driver of that elevated level of the bump or vote no, where coming out of the COVID pandemic, companies who were then going into or entering into M&A transactions shortly thereafter, maybe were kind of getting the question from investors of, have you really gotten full value for the business? Have you maximized it? Or were you selling at a price that maybe anticipated a longer term to recovering from the pandemic. 
Okay, so Daniel, so tell us a little bit about how you think macroeconomic factors, including inflation and market volatility, are impacting M&A. And curious if you think a slowdown in M&A is something we're going to see in the not distant future. And if we do see something like that, do you think it will discourage activist campaigns? Well, maybe step back for a second on that, Ron, because I, I think it's worth noting that in the macro factors that we're seeing, and I think like yourself, right, we're seeing increased volatility in stock prices. There's obviously a rising rate environment. We have the global macro issues of, of what's going on in Ukraine. And certainly it feels like there is an impact there across the board that we're all thinking about and, and maybe expecting to impact the M&A side of, of activity. But what I would tell you is what we are seeing to date is that uh, M&A is not slowing down. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not just execution on you know deals that were in discussion or negotiation from last year uh, or maybe the early part of this year, but actually the level of strategic dialogue remains very high among our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while volumes are a little bit behind the record pace from 2021, they're still ahead of what we saw from 2017 to 2020. So again, I think... I want to just put in the context of we are still, at least for the time being, in a pretty strong M&A environment. I'd add to that, by the way, the the sponsors who uh, have pretty consistently been about uh, one third of the market in 21 and this year, uh, which if you go back just a few years ago, they were only making up about 20% of the market. So that bid is out there as well alongside the corporate bid. And remember, there are lots of corporates out there, Ron, who in many ways are still looking to reposition their businesses as we're entering into a, you know, maybe this, I guess I referred to it as a transition cycle on the ESG front. And I had a client tell me recently that was much too rapid and I should be thinking about it in evolutionary terms uh, in terms of the pace at which we're likely to go. But again, there are a lot of companies out there seeking to reposition themselves. So I think on the macro front, I agree those concerns are out there. They are potential headwinds down the road, but to date, we are still seeing the M&A environment and the market is being very, very strong. However, right, mm-hmm. if that were to change, right, and, and I mm-hmm. think as you postulated in the question, does that change what activists are doing? I think the answer in some cases is yes, as it relates to maybe some of the existing investments that they've made. And there'll definitely be some issues and some struggles for some of those investments in terms of trying to work your way out and realizing value. And you know, the funds who have done a better job maybe of hedging themselves or whether those are macro hedges or, or even hedges on the specific positions may be better served in moving out of those. But I, what it's going to also do is create an environment where there are more attractive entry points and there are going to be opportunity sets that have not existed as activists have, you know, true to their supposed nature, I guess, of being value-oriented investors. Many of them have struggled in recent times to find entry points, uh, in particular in sectors like industrials, in, in sectors like technology, where valuations have been significantly higher than where they had been historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that will allow for activists to maybe come into those stocks at uh, perceived valuations that are much more attractive. In some ways, we're obviously nowhere near this point that I'm going to make yet. But in some ways, and maybe in some markets or pockets of the market, it mm-hmm. feels a little bit or may feel a little bit to the activists like the period post the financial crisis in 2009, 10, and 11. 
where I think activists did incredibly well for themselves, in part because they weren't expecting a quick takeout, but they viewed the valuation point on entry as being incredibly attractive. And it allowed them in some cases to be more patient and to allow businesses to correct maybe a little bit more of a focus on balance sheet and operational activism. Mm-hmm. And then strategic outcomes in many cases were on the come in 2013, 14, and 15, as opposed to being the sort of quicker flips that I think we've come to expect in more recent years. That is very interesting. And these 13Fs are coming in right now. And uh, I was just talking to an advisor, a corporate defense advisor, not too long ago about how these 13Fs, you know, these are the quarterly reports from uh, activists with their positions. They just came in for the first quarter, and we were discussing how we thought We'll see a lot of new positions emerge in the second quarter of 2022 as the markets continue to go on a downward trajectory, giving a lot of entry points for activists to accumulate new positions, particularly in a few different sectors. So putting that aside, we're seeing a lot of another kind of trend with activists. And I feel like it goes along with a number of hostile bids we've seen from strategic buyers that appear to be continuing. We just saw one not too long ago with uh, targeting Spirit Airlines. These are the activist hedge funds with their faux bids. And you know what I'm talking about. These are a hedge fund that doesn't own any portfolio companies, making a bid, doesn't provide any public letter of intent for financing. Should companies take these bids seriously? And if not, why? I think, Ron, you're, you're hitting on uh, a, a very, very difficult question for companies to deal with. I think, you know, stepping back for a moment, I'd say, we tend to not call them faux bids, uh, just because it's, I think, very difficult to know <laughs> whether they are or they are not in many cases. Fair enough. Uh, I think we've seen situations where, uh, you know, a letter from a bulge bracket bank is sometimes accepted, sometimes not accepted, you know, depending on the caveats that letter may actually have or whether a bank is named or not named. I think this is not new, is how I would uh, couch my response in thinking about it. We've seen Carl Icahn many, many, many years ago uh, engage in this. And I think there was a period of time where we might have looked at Elliott and thought about some of the bids they were making as kind of falling into this category. I think we're in a world today where Elliott is considered to be, and by evidence of the number of companies and take privates they've participated in, a real bidder and a bona fide private equity firm, if you will, in terms of what they're doing. So I think it is uh, difficult to know whether today's hedge fund is uh, or activist fund is bidding to simply put the company into play or maybe has gone to the effort and the trouble of compiling a management team of actually trying to do the diligence that they're able to from the outside and is really trying to find a way to or a seat at the table for discussion and is interested in taking the company private. I'd add that one of the things that we are seeing is with some of the hedge funds that are out there as part of their capital raising efforts, many of the activist funds are actually trying to position take privates as something where they can bring expertise to the table, where they are able to drive to outcomes or push companies, if you will, to actually moving into situations or offers, if you will, so that they can be taken private. Whether or not that is something that is ultimately going to work out for them or just bring someone else, uh, I think it's for the LPs to be able to distinguish which of their investments they think are real or which of their investors they think are able to do that. But I do think we're starting to see 
more and more overlap between what the activist hedge funds are doing and what the private equity funds do. And some of that, by the way, cutting the other way as well with the private equity right. funds who are taking you know toehold positions in public companies. And again, arguably saying we are just doing this because we think there's a value opportunity, but presumably trying to position themselves as the likely acquirer of those companies. And to the last part of the question you asked, which I think is really the thing that we spend the most time thinking about, which is for our clients, how do you engage on these? It is really very challenging because Mm -hmm. it is incredibly difficult to distinguish whether or not someone is a bona fide bidder with real financing capabilities and someone you should take seriously, or if someone is simply trying to put the company into play. And do you engage with them or do you simply put up the wall and say, you know, we are not going to engage with you. You are not getting a seat at the table. Or even more difficult is where there is no process. And is this someone who we're supposed to consider as having made a, a truly legitimate offer? I think it obviously is difficult because if you do not engage, you run the risk of being used against you, right, in the court of public opinion, if and when that uh, that firm launches a proxy contest. On the right. other hand, if you engage with them, you may be providing a, an in somehow to someone to then kind of, uh, you know, open the door for mm-hmm. a process that you would actually engaged in that force, you know, allows others into the fray. So let's talk a little bit about ESG. You know, this is a hugely important area. We're talking about the environment, social governance, investing. And I wanted to put it together with what we're seeing with activist hedge funds. So we've all seen engine number one's big ESG win at ExxonMobil last year. And this year we have two ESG battles launched by Carl Icahn at McDonald's and Kroger's. The institutional shareholder services, I think, just came out uh, recommending against Icahn's candidates at McDonald's. And I think they were surprised he doesn't have a, he has a minuscule investment there. Curious if you think we'll see more traditional hedge fund type activists incorporating ESG. Oh, and a couple others we saw in Europe, I wanted to just throw out there is uh, Third Points targeting Shell with an ESG breakup campaign. They recently noted that they are buying more Shell and are continuing to push for breakup there. Elliot, the management, uh, you know, one of the most proactive activists globally, has an ESG saw breakup campaign at SSE. So what do you think? Is this something we'll see more of? Yeah, I, I think we are at the beginning uh, or early innings, Ron, of, uh, of where this is going. I think I would still make a distinction between the uh, economic uh, activist campaigns. So uh, even ExxonMobil, which I, I, I still feel very strongly as, as much as uh, Engine Number 1 had stated was an ESG campaign, is really about the economic returns or lack thereof that uh, Exxon had provided for a number of years. Uh, I, I think uh, you know that campaign, the SSE campaign, and Shell campaigns that you pointed to as well, uh, to to me fall into the category of campaigns where uh, the environmental and social aspects, governance as well, are part of the story. They're, they are a uh, a tool that the activist is using to help them win uh, support or to unlock the value that they see from an economic perspective. Uh, And and that should be distinguished from, as as you pointed to, the McDonald's campaigns and Kroger's campaigns that are being run by Carl Icahn. uh, And maybe also I point to the the Solvay campaign that Bluebell is running. Oh, yeah, that's one one share he owns, right? The Bluebell of one share or something like that. One share. One yeah. share. And those feel very strongly to be in the camp of what I would call much more the historically having been the uh, 
the environmental or social gadfly type campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think um, what's what's interesting is I think we are starting to see those creeping closer and closer together. Uh, again, the the inclusion and, and focus in economic campaigns on the impact of environmental and social behavior uh, on the interconnectedness to both compensation as well as to the governance aspects, but also the potential for and, and maybe we're starting to see it happening with, as you pointed to, some of the campaigns that we're seeing, the shareholder proposals that are being put forward by folks like Majority Action and As You So, uh, Majority Action in particular is running a number of withhold campaigns in the oil and gas space. Uh, and uh, I, I think they are taking on more of the economic activist tactics in terms of how they are going after companies. Uh, and, and with that, I think the universal proxy is now coming into the mix oh, yeah. as well, which in, is likely to significantly reduce cost uh, and maybe in, encourage uh, more people to take a, a, a shot at it, if you will, in terms of putting forward nominees or running campaigns. Uh, and I, I will add to that, I think you're seeing some concern over that possibility uh, in what BlackRock has now come out with, with their statement that uh, they are probably going to support fewer campaigns uh, that are environmentally focused. Uh, I think they pointed to the prescriptive nature of some of the uh, proposals that they're seeing and that they would rather boards and management have the flexibility to run the companies in the right way. Uh, but I also think it's a message to the folks who are considering putting proposals forward at, at every company that you are not going to have a uh, you know blank check, if you will, in terms of support from at least BlackRock. Uh, we'll see what the, the other large index funds like State Street and Vanguard do with uh, from their end. Yeah, it's interesting. BlackRock last year was very supportive of a lot of kind of activisty environmental themed shell proposals. And this year, the Securities Exchange Commission has been uh, allowing many more prescriptive shelter proposals on environmental and social themes than they did previously. And we saw BlackRock coming out that saying that they're not going to be supporting such prescriptive environmental themed shell proposals. So we'll see if there's a backlash there. So Okay, I wanted to shift to one last topic, and it's a subject that I've been writing a lot about lately related to activism and something that I'm I'm very interested in, which is this situation where we're seeing activists accumulating huge derivatives positions to help them gain leverage at target companies. Just as the SEC is, uh, you know, they introduced a proposal on derivative disclosure, particularly cash out equity swaps, also known as total return swaps. And, uh, you know, we've seen activists accumulating derivatives around the edges for years and years and years. But just in the last few months, I've seen some really huge examples, uh, one of which is at a fund called Windacre, bought a huge derivatives position at Nielsen. I think it was 14.4%. And then boom, it quickly showed up with, it seems like that derivatives position disappeared. And now they have 27.3%, a $2.5 billion accumulation in ordinary shares in Nielsen, the TV rating company. Another company, Navient, Sherbone showed up with 16%, 13% of which was derivatives. And then the company posed the 20% pill and they quickly converted their position into shares or, and the derivatives was gone. And they have, I think it was 19% or some very large equity position. 
And there was a, a couple others, Elliot at Western Digital, a company called Atlas at Silvamo, where they have large derivatives positions. So I'm curious, Daniel, what do you think is the motivation to buy large derivatives positions? And do you think we'll see the situation change if the SEC adopts its proposal that require more derivatives disclosure? I am not sure, Ron, that this is a function of activists doing this in either greater size or greater frequency. Uh, as you correctly point out, there have been a number of activist funds who have taken advantage of the ability to build large positions through derivatives over the years. There are some funds in particular who have, in many cases, it is the only way that they build positions. And frankly, it makes it incredibly difficult for companies to know who owns their shares and in what size. And activists, I understand and appreciate that the idea of leverage is helpful in terms of what they're doing, but there's lots of ways you can borrow to accumulate a position and doing it through derivatives seems to me to be done specifically to avoid the disclosure requirements. We are very much in favor of what the SEC is doing. I I say that as my view, not a house view, but it feels as though it levels the playing field to some extent to allow companies an opportunity to see what is going on and to kind of keep people maybe a little bit within bounds in terms of the positions that they're building. I think one of the reasons we are seeing perhaps more of these with either greater frequency, but also greater size is the targets in many of these cases are larger cap. Mm -hmm. And obviously the limitation on building the position through derivatives, both overall market cap, but also the liquidity of the target. And so as activists have been targeting larger companies as a Private equity has been targeting larger companies and, and therefore the bumpetrage campaign that you referenced. I think it has lent itself to an opportunity for derivatives in a larger and more frequent scale to be used. And I again, I, I don't think that that should be the governor. And I think the, this is about the disclosure rules. And if we believe that market participants should be aware of what is going on, I think the SEC should be cutting down on the ability to use these derivatives and avoid the disclosure requirements. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with the Securities and Exchange Commission. They seem to have a new proposal they put out every week. And it's true that in, in the historically, a, a number of proposals never were adopted. So it'll be interesting to see if they push forward with this one. A lot of opponents have come out in the comment letters. Okay, well, you've been listening to the Activist Investor Today podcast, and we've been speaking to Daniel Kirstein, Global Head of Barclays Activist Defense and ESG Advisory Group. Thank you, Daniel, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon.